Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked up to the first terrace of Mount Purgatory, all the way to Canto 10 of Purgatorio. We're going to be at lines 46 through 69. Let me remind you that we've come through the great and dramatic gate. We found ourselves in a very tight spot up to this first terrace. We got here and it appears to be deserted. In fact, verging off into the void. But we did find out that one side is white marble and has intaglio or carvings in that marble. We saw the first carving of the Annunciation in the last episode of this podcast, and now we're moving on to the second carving. This is my English translation, as always, of the Medieval Florentine. You can find it, as always, on my website, markscarvo.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can print it off, you can make your own notes, or you can drop comments there and continue the conversation with me and others. Let's get to the passage, Purgatorio, Canto 10, lines 46 through 69. Don't fix your attention on only one spot, my kind master said. He'd set me on the side of him where people have their hearts. Beyond Mary and on the same side where he had motioned for me to look, I turned my face and saw the relief of another story in the rock. I walked on past Virgil and got up close so that my eyes might inspect it more fully. There, carved in the marble, were the wagon and oxen which drew the sacred ark. It makes anyone timid to do a task not already assigned. In the foreground, there appeared to be a crowd, in fact, a mass of people divided into seven choirs. They were so lifelike, they made my senses say to each other, no, and then, yes, they are singing. In like manner, the smoke of the incense was so well imagined that it put my eyes and nose in discord, you know, between no and yes. There, just in front of the blessed vessel, the humbled psalmist leaped up, his robes flying around him. He looked both more and less like a king at that moment. Across from him, framed in the window of a splendid palace, Michel glared at him like a woman who was both contemptuous and sad. Before we get started with this passage in this podcast, let me say one thing about the woman in the window, Michelle, or as I said in the read-through, Michael. Please forgive me. I was raised a low-church Protestant, and we always pronounced her name Michael. I realize in the Hebrew it's Michel, and I realize that that probably is the preferred pronunciation of her name, but I can't help myself. My Baptist roots are showing through, and so I called her Michael, and I might do so in this episode of the so just bear with me. Realize I come from very low church roots. So where do I want to go inside this episode? I want to talk about this intaglio versus the one we just passed of the Annunciation. I want to talk a little bit about being on a side of Virgil. And I think there might be more there than meets the eye. And then we want to spend a lot of time talking about this passage in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Torah that is mentioned here, in which the Ark of the Covenant is being brought to Jerusalem by David. I realize none of that is said in the passage, so we need to kind of tease all that out. But the description of the image itself that is given to us is incredibly complicated for lots of reasons, including the details that Dante feels free to add to the biblical text. 
A great place to start is with this image in the marble versus the one of the Annunciation that we just had. One of the things that you'll notice here is that this is becoming a much more complex scene. People, seven choirs, leaping about, incense, senses confused by the viewer. It compares or contrasts, I should say, with the previous scene, which was rather spare with that Ave and Ecce Ancilla Day. I think you could see that it's becoming more elaborate. And in fact, not only is the art becoming more elaborate, but the reaction of the viewer or your Dante the Pilgrim is becoming more elaborate. That seems like a very big distinction between the two and one we should pay attention to as we move forward into the passage. Let's talk about Virgil has Dante on the side where people have their hearts, the left side. (laughs) I laugh because despite my husband's grandfather, who actually had his heart on the right side, his heart was reversed from a genetic defect. But that's a different matter altogether. So we assume it's on the left side. And there might be more to this whole bit than we think at first blush. What I mean by this is that Virgil and Dante are connected by the heart at the opening of this passage. And we should think of the heart as a center for sensations and anxieties. The Middle Ages still posits the liver as a primary organ of emotional response. But uh, don't forget the lake of the heart bit in Inferno 1. The heart is starting to be seen as much more an emotional center. They're linked up by the heart. But, and here's the big but, Dante apparently must move beyond Virgil. And this is what happens in the passage. They're linked at the heart, and then Virgil motions, and the passage says, I walked on past Virgil. And this may seem like a little bit of naturalistic detail, sure enough, but perhaps we should think about how Virgil was seen in the Middle Ages. We've talked a little bit about this, but I want to talk more about it. Virgil was often seen as a pagan precursor of Christianity. And the reason he gets that demarcation is not because of the Aeneid, although a little bit, I'll talk about that in a minute, but really because of his eclogues. In the fourth eclogue, Virgil predicted, allegedly predicted, the coming of a chosen son. Now, he meant Gaius Octavius, or who we know as Gaius Julius Caesar Augustus. But Christians read that, and they saw an image, a shadow, a signification of the coming Messiah. And they thought, ah, Virgil had a glimpse of the coming redemption. Now, out of this moment comes the whole tradition of then seeing the Aeneid as also a proto-Christian work. That is the soul's journey to its homeland, or Aeneas's journey from Troy to the founding of Rome. That whole anagogical reading of the Aeneid arises out of a, dare I say it, misreading of the fourth eclogue as predicting the coming of the Messiah. So Virgil is seen as his proto-precursor. Two things then bear on this passage. One, Virgil seems to hurry Dante on to the next scene. He says, don't fix your attention on only one spot. And then we're given this, my kind master said. So we're supposed to see this not as a reprimand, but as just a nudge. Let's move on. And 
therefore we have to stop and think, wait a minute, does Virgil not recognize the significance of the Annunciation scene? And is that why he's pushing Dante on to the next scene? Because Virgil didn't recognize the significance of the sun in his own eclogue and so didn't realize he was predicting the coming of the Messiah. That's a little bit twisted up and difficult to understand, but just think about it for a minute. Here's the Annunciation. They see it. They don't spend much time on it. And Virgil says, okay, let's go on. Let's go on. And then they're connected at the heart. And then Dante goes past Virgil. Is this Virgilian reticence to see the significance of the Annunciation and to push on to other matters? Is that being ironically presented for us here? Or, in fact, or, and or, I guess I should say, and or, must Dante move beyond Virgil to be open? to divine art, not just human art, Dante has got to eventually get beyond Virgil. And we know that over the course of comedy, he will get significantly beyond Virgil. He's already beyond Virgil here on Mount Purgatory. Nothing in Virgil would ever anticipate this scene except this proto-Christian pagan prediction of the coming Messiah that may be seen to lie down underneath the fourth eclogue, even though it's not there. Is that all going on in this passage? And is that why the pilgrim has to move past Virgil? And is that why they're connected to the hearts? And then that connection seems to break as Dante moves forward. It's all very curious. And I'm not going to come to any necessary resolution here other than to say to you, there may be much more going on here than first meets the eye. And now what's going to meet the eye is the scene, the intaglio, what's carved into the marble. So let's look at it. It's about the moving of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem by King David, a story told in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. The Ark of the Covenant is being moved into the seat of David's kingdom, Jerusalem. While it's being moved, certain things happen to it. These things are really important to the story as a whole. Uh, for example, someone tries to stop the wagon from tipping over. They're killed. We want to come back to that. The wagon with the Ark of the Covenant gets housed in somebody's house, and they get tremendously blessed from housing the Ark of the Covenant, where supposedly certain sacred items are held and where God allegedly sits between the two angels in the mercy seat. And then finally, as the Ark of the Covenant on this cart driven by the oxen comes into Jerusalem, King David is leaping wildly, ecstatically all around. And his wife, Michal, or Michael, the daughter of the old king Saul, sees him and is just absolutely horrified and, in fact, castigates him, saying, you know, oh, great, you're out there leaping around, your robes up in the air, exposing your private parts to the public. You've made a fool out of yourself. And for this, at the end of the passage, she is declared barren. I should say that for this is a little bit debatable. What happens is she castigates David and then it says she bore no children from that day. So is that is that causally linked? Most rabbis and biblical scholars will say it is that because she looked down on David's form of exuberant worship, she was then declared barren. You should just know in the actual passage itself, it just seems to be two consecutive ideas. It's an interpretive framework that's put on it that she's declared barren. 
barren because of her actions. Okay, so that's all that's going on here, and that's the bit from 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 23. I'm not going to read the whole passage to you. Instead, I want to point out some very complex ironies inside this passage. But before I do that, I want to just stop and make you look at the last six lines. There, just in front of the blessed vessel, the humble psalmist leaped up his robes, flying around him. There he is, exposing himself to the public. He looked both more and less like a king at that moment. Across from him, framed in the window of the splendid palace, Michal glared at him like a woman who was both contemptuous and sad. Right here, we should just pause. Because we had Dante and Virgil early in this passage, we should really pause here. I love this bit. Because what we have here at the end of the passage is a moment of low street comedy. The king jumping around, exposing himself in exuberant worship in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and the high style as Michel looks down from the window and sees him. And she, in fact, is a tragic figure rendered barren. At the end of this passage, we have a juxtaposition between low comedy and high tragedy. Or do I have to push this? between Dante and Virgil. And in fact, it's going to become even more complex as we work through this. But just think about this for a minute. We have this very funny scene of David jumping all around, street comedy, the kind of thing Dante himself is practicing with his vernacular poetry, particularly in an inferno. And across the street is this very high, disdainful look, looking down on the low comedy. So that Virgil-Dante relationship that at the beginning of the past seemed to be one way, now is kind of inverted, and the one who goes beyond Virgil is in fact the practitioner of the low comedy, the jumping about. Tragedy is kind of turned on its head or put down in favor of low comedy. This surely must make us stop, but not stop as much as the complex ironies in the passage. There are two sets of complex ironies. Let's start with the first one. Dante adds details to the story from 2 Samuel. Here are the two details he adds. Seven choirs. In the foreground, there appear to be a crowd, in fact, a mass of people divided into seven choirs. That is not in the passage at all. Yes, there are crowds of people following the ark into Jerusalem. Seven choirs? No. Dante added that. He's got his antiphonal chanting going on. We're back to that opening bit about polyphonic singing as they come through the gate of purgatory. Seven choirs. This would be very complicated polyphony. In fact, more complicated than the polyphony Dante would know about, but that is a whole subject in himself. He's anticipating Bach levels of polyphony here with seven choirs, something he would never have heard in his own life. Okay, that, let's leave that alone, but say he's just adding the detail of the seven choirs and also the smoke of the incense. This is added by Dante. Now, it's probably true that if they were pulling the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, they would have incense going around it, but it's not stated in the passage. Dante has added a detail, and you'll notice both of these details 
are the very parts that are allegedly so mimetic. It is the seven choirs that make my senses say, no, they're not singing, and yes, they are singing, and it is the incense that makes my nose say, no, and yes. This is such a complicated game that Dante is playing. He is adding details to the biblical text, and those are the very details which he's claiming make the art the most realistic it can be so that your senses are in conflict with each other. Your ears say they're singing, and your eyes say, no, they're not. They're carved into marble. And your nose says, I smell incense, but your eyes say, you don't. It's just carved into marble. Those are the bits that make the art so realistic they cause a sensory response, and those are the bits that Dante makes up and adds to the passage. Just think about the complexity. (laughs) When I was a kid, I used to ask my grandmother all kinds of questions about God and how God exists and all this kind of stuff, and she always said to me, don't ask so many questions. They'll make you thin. So let me say that this is the kind of thing that if you think about it more and more, it's going to make you thin because you'll realize the complex irony that's going on here. And now it's about to get even more complex. It's that strange line that the Ark makes anyone timid to do a task not already assigned. So the Ark's coming in, they're pulling it with the wagon and the oxen, and then you get this really weird offline. Wait, why the temerity at doing a task you're not assigned? Why? Because as the Ark is being carted into Jerusalem, Uzzah lifts up his hand and touches the cart because it appears to become unsteady. And God gets furious at Uzzah and strikes him dead on the spot because the rationale here most likely is something like God thinks, hey, I can handle my own cart and my own ark and you don't have to help me out here. Don't think that as a mere mortal, you can help God out. Okay, except in the 11th epistle, Dante seems to identify himself with Uzzah, and in fact, here, we might be able to say that Dante is making a little identification with the guy that reaches out to steady the ark because he's adding details to the scene, because he's steadying the scene, because he's recreating it more more dramatically. So Dante is, to use some of the words from the 11th epistle, the new Uzzah. He's studying that cart with his art. How dare he? Won't God strike you dead? Good question. Complex irony. And there's another one. Michael is up in that window looking down at David jumping around. It says across from him, and it really emphasizes this in the Florentine, that across the street, across the way, Michael is looking down at David. Well, guess who's also across from David? Dante and Virgil. They're looking at the intaglio across from it. They're in the position of Michael looking down over at David jumping about. So, Dante is seated in the place of the person, Michael, who looks down on David jumping about. And you should know that, as I said, Michael is made barren, perhaps because of her disdain. So is Dante a little nervous here about what could happen to him? And of course, we'll have to say that this scene ends with Michael, who ends up barren. And we just came out of the Annunciation scene 
of the pregnancy of the Virgin Mary. So the two are contrasted. And of course, not only are they pregnant and barren, I mean, both their fertilities are highlighted here, but it is two women in both of these images. And I think that's really important, the two different responses, the haughty Michael and the humble submission of the Virgin. Is there some misogyny sitting under this? Of course. Is it, in fact, paralleled so that Dante can work out a larger purpose? Yes. But the ironies here are so complex between low and high tragedy, between added details which are the basis of the realism claim. (laughs) Not the historicity of the text, the Old Testament text it comes from, but the added details are the basis of what makes the art appear so real. And furthermore, this weird bit about reaching out and studying the cart, which is just about what Dante's doing by adding these details and making the scene more realistic as he stands in the same place that Michael is in, which is the place of high tragedy, which is not where he wants to be, which is low comedy, which is what he practices. Oh, my gosh. See, thin. You're going to get really thin. This call for greater realism in art, the art that is so realistic it makes the senses doubt themselves. Oh my gosh, is this really happening? I don't think so. No, it's a painting. No, it's a statue. Is it really happening? This call for greater and greater realism is actually a call to provoke a stronger response out of the viewer. This is the kind of prime underlying motivation of the increasing realism and perspectival art of the Renaissance. Of course, this call to provoke something out of me will lead to Leonardo's Last Supper. This will lead to the veins in the hand of Michelangelo's David. Of course, it is intended to provoke me further and further to understanding the truth, right? Um, Those veins in David's hand from Michelangelo, those make me realize how heroic David is, how (laughs) sexy he is, how much I want to identify with him or be near him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing only because of Michelangelo's sexuality in mind, but true, right? It's very sexy stuff, and it's provoking a reaction out of me, which is what Dante is calling for here. that is so real it provokes a reaction out of me but you know what will happen although everyone knows that this leads to the renaissance it doesn't stop there this is what leads to romanticism and what leads to the notion that my response the readers the viewers response is the primary response or the painters the poets response is primary to the thing actually produced and it's not very far from that to the abstracts of Joan Mitchell, Jackson Pollock, and Gerhard Richter. This is what it's going to lead to, because they're provoking something out of me. The focus of the production of the art is slowly going to move toward the viewer or reader, and that reaction provoked in us is going to become the primary point, which is where Dante's pushing it, although he doesn't know that. We can see in the long view that this call for greater and greater realistic art, which at its foundation is to provoke a response out of the viewer or the reader, is in fact a call ultimately for the desacredization of art. And ultimately it will lead to the humanization of art, which leads us straight to the abstracts of Mitchell, Pollock, 
and Richter. One more time, the passage itself, Purgatorio, Canto 10, lines 46 through 69. Don't fix your attention on only one spot, my kind master said. He'd set me on the side of him where people have their hearts. Beyond Mary, and on the same side where he had motioned for me to look, I turned my face and saw the relief of another story in the rock. I walked on past Virgil and got up close so that my eyes might inspect it more fully. There, carved in the marble, were the wagon and oxen which drew the sacred ark. It makes anyone timid to do a task not already assigned. In the foreground, there appeared to be a crowd, in fact, a mass of people, divided into seven choirs. They were so lifelike they made my senses say to each other, No, and then, Yes, they are singing. In like manner, the smoke of the incense was so well imagined that it put my eyes and nose in discord, you know, between no and yes. There, just in front of the blessed vessel, the humble psalmist leaped up, his robes flying around him. He looked both more and less like a king at that moment. Across from him, framed in the window of a splendid palace, Michel glared at him like a woman who was both contemptuous and sad. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Welcome to Dante. I hope you enjoyed this incredibly thin making exercise in interpretation. Purgatorio is nothing if not mind bending, and it's going to get more so. Just to warn you, this is going to go to places that it is very hard to predict if you don't know it's headed there. <laughs> Every time I say something like that, I just think about Paradiso and I roll my eyes thinking, oh my gosh, the difficulties ahead. Given all of that, it would be great if you could subscribe to this podcast, if you could join us on the walk, if you could be here for this, if you could comment, you can drop a comment on my website about this very podcast, disagree or agree or add or change or alter the meanings of what's going on. Here's my voice. It needs your voice too. Also, if you could rate this podcast and write a review of it on any platform, that would be spectacular and otherwise I will see you back here next time for the third Intaglio in the Marble, which is even more complex. Oh, my God. <laughs> what a crazy poet. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you on the walk ahead.